come with me to Ephesians 6 as we wrap up our mini-series called House Rules. Uh, It's Mother's Day, which is an incredible day for us as a church to honor all of our women. We live in a world that's never quite figured out how to honor women, and so we're growing and learning what it looks like to do that. One of the ways we want to do that today, ladies, is as you leave, our women's ministry has a gift for you. If you're here as a woman, then you can just go into the Welcome Center when we're done here today, and we just want to put something in your hands that says and communicates how much we love you, how much God loves you. Uh, If you are here and you're a mom, we are grateful for you. Uh, I hope your day is filled with wonderful things. I hope your kids are with you. I hope they call you. I hope they FaceTime you. I hope you experience God's delight in you. We also know that this is a hard day for a lot of people. For some of us, we walk into Mother's Day and there's a tension in our relationship with our kids, in our relationship with our mom. There are moms in this room who have buried children. There are moms who sat in hospital rooms and held their stillborn child. There are mothers here who have had miscarriages, who have had abortions. There are some of us in this room as women who desperately want to be a mom. And this Mother's Day finds us in another long and lonely month of infertility. We've received news that the birth mother that we thought was going to be the mother of our adopted child, she has changed her mind. There are women in this room who desperately want to be moms, but they are not married, and as far as they can tell, that's not going to change anytime soon. And so there is a deep aching and longing and a wondering and a questioning, God, why have you put this desire in me? I just want to say this as one of the pastors here. Whoever you are, whatever this day is in the course of your story, we're honored that you're here. God loves you. Your value as a human being, your value as a woman can never be reduced to your role as a mother. And I believe that even the desire to be a mom is a particular gift from God, and that some of you here who so desperately want to be a mom, it might be the word that you need to hear that even the desire to be a mom in God's economy makes you a mother. How he uses that desire, you may not know, I might not know, we might not know, but we're here, and I'm glad we're here together. Now, our text this morning in Ephesians 6 is not a Mother's Day text, but it does bring to mind a story about a grandmother. One of my spiritual mentors, a man named Howard Thurman, living in an earlier generation, grew up being raised by his grandmother, Nancy Ambrose. He tells the story in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, and he talks about the fact that his grandmother uh, taught him how to read by reading the Scriptures. And he would read Old Testament and New Testament, but he would never, ever, ever read the letters of the Apostle Paul. His grandmother wouldn't allow it, and here's why. Because of texts like the one that we're about to read, where white preachers would show up 
on the plantation and use at least part of this text we're about to read to remind slaves that God meant for them to stay slaves. This text addresses slaves and masters, and that creates tension here in this room, here in a city where at one time both the Klan and Dr. King resided. Creates a tension in a room where some of us wonder why we keep talking about racism. And others who carry the generational scars of ancestors who lived in slavery. I am not privy to all the whys and reasons that God has for us to look into this text together, but I do want to be helpful. And maybe the most helpful thing that I can say to those of you here who carry the neurological and spiritual weight deep in your soul and bones of how your ancestors were dehumanized and made into property might be to say this. My hope is that you will experience this church as an intercultural community, as a place where you and your culture, your experience, your story is desired and valued and celebrated and honored. My hope is that when we say as a church that you belong here, that you would find yourself not just hearing it or saying it, but feeling it deeply because you experience all of us as a family wanting to learn from you, desiring to walk with you, and committed to honoring the sacredness of your story. So we're here on Mother's Day, and we have a text addressing slaves and masters. We are surrounded by souls that are precious to God. This is a holy moment. So we dare not just lean in with our own intellect and emotions and desires and intent. We desperately need God in this moment, yes? So it makes sense that before we dig into this text and we hear what God has to say to us, we go to God and ask for his help. So gathered around Jesus, which is why we're here. We believe, as crazy as it sounds, that Jesus himself has invited us here and he is with us in this room. So we gather around him, and we pray together. Oh God, whose son, Jesus, the saving king, is the good shepherd of your people, help us here and now to hear his voice as he calls us by name. to know his voice so that we might follow him who, with you and your Holy Spirit, lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, I'm going to read through verse 9. Bondservants, literally that word is slaves, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text presents two challenges to us as a church here this morning. The challenge of past abuse and the challenge of present application. This text presents us with the challenge of past abuse. As I've already mentioned, this text has been twisted and turned and corrupted as a way to justify slaveholding and people remaining in captivity. I think it bears the question for us, how did that happen? And what might it mean for us? I want to talk about that a little bit later. The second challenge of present application is that there is no 21st century equivalent to 1st century Ephesian slaves and masters. And while there is some profit in applying this to what we do in our work Monday through Friday, I think there's something else here for us as a church. I'd like to share that with you. But first, we've got to make sense of what's going on here, okay? So, slaves and masters. Deep breath, okay? Um, There is nothing that I can say or that anyone can say to make this text sit right with us. There is ample evidence in the Scriptures from beginning to end that God is a God who invites us to advocate for justice, not because he is indifferent, but because in the way that he has created us, not only does he bring justice and make things right in this world, he partners with us to do so, and part of that partnership is for us to be people who cry out and cry foul when we see something that isn't right, and we discover something that isn't the way that it's supposed to be, and so we We cry, and we shout, and we question, and we doubt, and we wonder, and we rage why this is the way that it is. And so I think it's good to walk into this text and go, this is it, Paul? We ain't going to turn over any apple carts, bro? while at the same time recognizing the wisdom of God in confronting unflinchable injustice with the power of love. Whether or not Paul is aware of the possibilities of abolition, Paul does recognize the reality of the situation in which he finds himself. Writing to people, a small band of Christians living on the margins of society with no political power. So no, he does not call for the slaves to revolt, because as cool of a movie as Spartacus is, Spartacus reminds us what happens in first century Roman slave revolts. So here is Paul, working with the wisdom of God, never saying that this is okay, but reimagining what today might look like. Tomorrow, 
transformation. Today, recalibration. So as we sit with this text and we wonder and we fuss and we don't like it because I don't know why we should, because people are people. People are not property. Here is God through Paul showing us the wisdom, the wisdom of God that says, you know what? Violence begets violence. Today is not tomorrow. The moral arc of the universe does bend towards justice. And no, Paul does not call slaves to revolt. Paul does not call for the end to first century Ephesian slavery. But this text fanned the flame, served as the spark for abolition in the 18th and 19th century, and has all kinds of possibilities for what racial justice biblically looks like in the world here and now. So we're not at the mountain yet, and we might find ourselves individually and collectively climbing with desperation, dissatisfied with the way things are now. But God's not done yet. That's the message underneath the message. Because Jesus is who he is. Not only the savior of his people, but the king of the universe. Because Jesus is the saving king, all wrongs will be made right. Every person and people group will be made whole, not simply as an ingredient in the melting pot of society, but as part of the kaleidoscope where every color pops and every story matters. Slaves and masters. This letter we call Ephesians is a 2,000-year-old letter written by a man named Paul. It's a, it's a letter, a message about church and God, about a God who has won a decisive victory over the dark powers of sin and death. A God who in his victory has established a people, his church, a monument to the dark powers, what Paul calls powers and principalities. The God has won a victory and you're done. Whoever we are and whatever we are as a church, we are God's liberated people who have a role to play in his story. And succinctly, what Ephesians tells us is that our role is to imitate Jesus as we become like Jesus. That we as a people, as an intercultural, intergenerational community, are people who are called and wired and invited to take courageous improvisational risks in the name of love for the sake of God and others through the power of God's grace. His loving, empowering presence that is ours by the Spirit of God that we experience in moments like we just did as we're singing and as we mutually submit to one another. I'm getting that straight out of Ephesians 5 verse 21. And all God's people said, what is mutual submission? Because I'm not sure I signed up for that. I think Paul anticipates the question, the hesitation, the resistance to mutual submission. He's anticipating people are going to be like, what do you mean, Paul? What does that look like? And he says, well, here's what it means. It, 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 it looks like a marriage that God has gotten a hold of. It looks like 
parents and children that God has gotten a hold of. It looks like whatever slaves and masters looks like when God gets hold of them. Bumper sticker, this is important. House rules, these three things that we've been talking about, marriage, parenting, whatever slaves and masters is, the house rules in Ephesians 5 and 6 illustrate and instruct. Let me say it a little bit more clearly, particularly, definitively, pointedly. The house rules illustrate, then instruct. Make it plain, preacher. Here we go. There is value in looking at these texts the last two weeks as we have as instruction on marriage and parenting. And there's benefit and value from instruction here for us on slaves and masters. But I have come to believe that the most significant way to see these texts is not simply about your marriage and my parenting, but it's about how we get along and mutually submit to one another in the church. So what does that mean and what does that look like? Whatever instruction is here for us now in relationship to Paul's instruction to first century slaves and masters, I believe that that instruction is supposed to help illustrate who we are and how we get along as a church. That's where I'm going. That's about a 20-minute introduction. I think we're good. (laughs) So let's dig in. Paul speaks first to what the English Standard Version calls bondservants, I think, which is an, uh, an understandable but unnecessary way to translate the Greek word doulos, which I think is most emphatically and clearly translated as slave. I think they did that because they wanted us to see the distinction between African chattel slavery in the Americas and what was happening in first century Ephesus, which was distinct. Slavery here is not based on race. That social construct hadn't been created yet. But upwards of 60 million people in the Roman Empire at this time were living in slavery. They had been born into it, they had been kidnapped into it, or they volunteered for it. Now, the whys and whatnots of slavery we can't get into today, but what we can say is this. It is mind-boggling for a person living in the first century to hear someone address the slave directly. Because you don't address furniture and property. So Paul sees something other than furniture and property. He sees souls. He sees people. He sees people created in the image of God. He sees moral free agents. He sees people capable of rational thought and choice. And he addresses them first. He says, slaves, obey your masters. Again, ain't nothing that I can say going to make that sit right. But I do think there's something instructive, particularly in terms of as he describes what that obedience looks like. I'll give it to you in three words. Obey your earthly masters with respect, with integrity, and with a good attitude. You can look at the text with me. Obey with respect, with 
Fear and trembling, which is an odd phrase that I don't think any of us in this room would use, I think Paul is connecting it back to Ephesians 5.21, where we're told to submit to one another out of reverence, out of the fear of King Jesus. Don't have time to explain it. Underneath it, obey with respect. Obey with integrity. What we see here as we read is an opportunity for us to think through this and to serve not just simply um, by doing things to please our masters, but even when they're not looking, to do the right thing the right way. So obey with respect and integrity and a good attitude, rendering service with a good will, doing the will of God from the heart. That's what it looks like. Obey with respect and integrity and a good attitude. And the reason you do that is because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the saving king. He is ultimately your master. And as your master, here's the good news. It don't matter how your earthly master responds. It says in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does... He will receive back from the Lord, which sparks imaginations of reward from God. God and Jesus aren't shy about talking about rewards. There's a way to translate verse 8 that says this, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will find himself near the Lord. Now we're getting closer to the pen of what, when we talk about reward and blessing, what are we talking about? It says it doesn't matter how your master responds to you. When you do the right thing and you do it for me, you will experience my grace, which we keep talking about God's grace as the loving, empowering presence of God. Here's what it means. When you obey your earthly master, with respect, with integrity, with a good attitude. Jesus is with you, and what you will experience is his smiling face, regardless of what you receive back from your master. Again, it ain't going to make it right, but it might be helpful. Masters, treat them the same way, with respect, with integrity, with a good attitude. Let me make it plain to you, masters. Quit threatening them. Quit threatening your slaves, which is what everybody else around you does, but you are not to threaten their family, their future. You're not to threaten them with abuse or assault. That might be okay in the Roman Empire, but in the kingdom of God, they are not property. They are family. So to borrow a phrase, slave and master, we are one, but we are not the same. God has invited us in whatever station we are, in whatever moment we find ourselves, to treat one another with respect, with integrity, and with a good attitude. Now, what in the world do we do with this? What, in the, what, what should we do with this text? I have two ideas. The first is to say this. I think this text and this message is an invitation for us as a church to keep practicing Scripture. To keep practicing Scripture. We are Fellowship Bible Church. It's in our name. Whatever that means, it means that we are people who believe that the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation 
or our standard of what we believe and how we behave, yes? What we have to wrestle with, I believe, is in this part of the world, with the various and collective stories that we bring into this room, that we have to wonder why people like us, at least some of us, who also said that they believe that the Bible was the standard of belief and behavior, why they twisted and corrupted this text to convince people that slavery was okay and to tell slaves that that's what you were made for. We don't have time to th think to get into the, all the, the way down into how this happened, but I do think there's a plain caution for us that as, as we cease to listen to the wisdom of other disciples and apprentices of Jesus, as who we listen to gets more and more narrow, we lose the capacity to discern what God wants us to do. Here's what I mean. We are part of a global historic church and a master and king who seems to prioritize the voices of people living on the margins. What we can say is that somehow, some way, people living in this part of the world became convinced that they should not listen to the people that God seems to speak to and to speak through and to continue to limit who they listen to until they found a way to justify sinful actions in the name of Jesus. Now, what that could turn into here, that's not today's conversation, but I, I think there's an opportunity here for us to say, we don't want to be people like that, so how do we avoid it? I think we keep practicing Scripture together. We keep reading together. We keep meditating and memorizing Scripture together. We keep learning and listening to the Scripture together. In our interpretation of the Scripture, we take in the entire story of God, not just pieces and parts. We remember the original context of the story that is rooted in a marginalized Jewish man. And we root everything in the good news of all that God has done, is doing, and will do in and through Jesus as the saving king that we call the gospel. We practice the Scriptures together, we interpret the Scriptures together, and we apply the Scriptures together, taking our place as a localized community within a global, historic church that, unlike everyone else in the world, listens and honors and prioritizes the voices of the vulnerable. Women, children, ethnic minorities, and the poor. That's there all the way through. That's the opportunity there for us as we practice Scripture. We take it in, we interpret it, we apply it. We do that not so that we might figure things out and master the Scriptures as much as we might become so saturated in the Scriptures that we become wise and discerning. We become a people who are able to know both how we should live out the will of God, but also to know what the will of God is. What does God want us to do? And it's in that spirit that I offer up to you a question for discernment. I believe there's an invitation here 
that isn't obvious on the surface of the text, but I think it's buried deep, deep down and saturated all the way through. I believe that Jesus wants us, Fellowship Bible Church, to keep practicing trust. Based on this reading of Ephesians, what we just read about slaves and masters is instructive. But more significantly, it's illustrative. Again, plainly. I do think that there's some value here for us in the way we think about going to work as an employee or an employer. Hey, the way of Jesus calls us to do our work and to relate to one another, particularly to relate to employers, to employees, employers or employees, however you want to imagine the power dynamics, with respect, integrity, and a good attitude. I think that's there. I think that's profitable for us. But I think there's something else here about how we as a church handle the decisions that we make. There are no slaves and masters in our church. But there are thousands of decisions that are made all the time. I'm not just talking about the big decisions, the church-wide decisions. I'm talking about the decisions that you and I make even interpersonally. Do we show up on a Sunday? When we show up, how do we speak to one another? How do we show ourselves to one another? But most importantly, I, I, I think there's something here for us to say that as a church where nobody gets to make all the decisions and nobody never is allowed to make any decisions, we all have agency. We can come and go. We can be here or not. We can stay, we can leave. What do you do when you don't like the decisions that are made by others? And what do you do when you don't like the response of people to the decisions that you've made. We are a church. We are a monument to God's victory over sin and death. There are a lot of us who look around and go, I'm afraid that the church is going to be crippled by them, by Washington, by the culture. That may or may not happen. But what if the defacing of God's church is an inside job? Again, I offer this to you as a question of discernment. I'm not coming with some specific word of knowledge, but I come with some questions and some observations. I've been here almost seven months, and it's been so amazing to be a part of this family. But as I have conversation after conversation with lots of different people about lots of different things, I have an observation to make. I believe that we as a church have become comfortable in our mistrust of each other. I I believe that what has happened over time is that 
the decisions and the responses that were made among individuals and a group of people has created comfort where there is no comfort because mistrust is never comfortable. It's painful. It's debilitating. But I, I wonder if what has happened over time is if we have developed a limp and we're not even aware that we have it anymore. I think back to um, the church that I pastored in Athens for almost 20 years, and we had an elder there who in his early, early 60s had to have his ankle reconstructed. Because as a younger man playing pickup basketball in Southern California, he landed on somebody's foot and broke his ankle. He was also working construction, and he didn't have the Aflac duck, so he had to go to work the next day. So what does he do? Puts on his work boot, straps it up, and just keeps going. But 40 years later, he had to have his ankle rebuilt, and eventually will have to have his knee rebuilt, and eventually will have to have his hip rebuilt. Because while the immediate pain of rolling and breaking his ankle had gone, he had gotten used to walking with a limp. I'm not talking about a particular person or group of people. I'm not talking about a particular decision or anything like that. I'm not even saying that every single person in here struggles to trust people. But the reality is, y'all, we're in this together. There are no enemies in this room. We're family. And what I keep bumping into over and over sounds something like this. Because of the decisions and responses that they made, I don't think they care about me. I keep running into, because of the decisions and responses that they made, I don't think they're reliable. Because of the decisions and responses that they've made, I don't think they have integrity. Because of the decisions and responses that they made, I don't think they know how to do their job. Now, I said I offer this as a question for discernment, which means I don't know that this is true. So I come in humility and hope. Humbly, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm still the new guy. And what I'm seeing is just getting lost in translation. But if I'm right, I still come in humility and hope. Because we all know that trust isn't easy. And I'm deeply, deeply hopeful that God's not done with us yet. So what might we do now? If you'll allow me to assume that some part of this is true. We struggle to trust one another. There are lots of ways we can talk about it. I just want to pass along one thing. One simple way of approaching people that you're struggling to trust. Two questions. The first is this. Really, it's a posture. Whether it's with an individual or a group, assume the best, not the worst. Assume the best of their intent and their effort. Don't discount the good things that you've experienced from them in the past just because of their actions and words might be confusing in the present. Assume the best. Secondly, ask questions, but ask questions with the intent to learn and grow, not to make your case. When we do the second, when we ask questions 
to make our case, we're probably not assuming the best. In, in my over 20 years of experience as a pastor, what I've found is that practice is not foolproof, but it is a consistent way for us to develop and to grow into and to live out the purity and peace of the church that we're supposed to display to one another, to the world, to the powers and principalities in the name of God himself. And all that's fine. But underneath it all, we're still bumping up against the limitation of our experience and capacity to trust where it's hard to trust. So this is the best news that I can tell you, and this is what I want to leave you with, and then we're done. We can trust each other because Jesus is the saving king. Because Jesus is the saving king, we can trust each other. Trusting is risky, particularly if you've been burned here or somewhere else in the past. I will make no promises that if you'll take that risk, you, you will be met with everything that you hope it will be met with. I do believe that we want to try. But even in our failure, even as we take that risk, whether somebody responds well or not, the ultimate goodness in this promise and this encouragement is that we can trust each other because Jesus is the saving king and he is with us. When you do good, verse 8, he will draw near to you. In your risk, you are not alone. In your risk, you are not left to your own devices. In your risk, when it feels like that person doesn't love you, nobody seems to love you, you're not without love. You're loved by the God of the universe. You're loved by the one who went to the cross to liberate his people and to give them a name and to give them a purpose. I don't come with any sort of big hurrah here at the end except this. Jesus is our great reward. We exist to honor him. We honor him by practicing trust. We're not there yet, but we do it a lot. So let's keep going. Let's keep leaning in. Let's assume the best. Let's ask all of our questions in order to learn and grow. Let's be honest about the places where we don't feel like they care. Let's be honest about the places where we're not sure they're reliable or have integrity or that they're even competent. But let's do that gathered around Jesus, knowing that he loves each of us, knowing that he's not done with us, and knowing that he intends to see us through to the end. That's what mutual submission looks like in the church. That's what it looks like for us to trust one another. I leave that with you and leave you with God. What I want to do is to simply give you space here for a little bit to just simply ask this question to Jesus. Because he's here in the room. Jesus, what did you want me to hear? What did you want me to hear? And then I'll pray for us before we sing one last song. Just in silence, wherever you're sitting, just with Jesus. What did you want me to hear today, Jesus?
whether you're here in this room or whether you're online, wherever you are, unless you're driving, would you stand with me? I'd like to bless you twice over. We're not quite done yet, but I do want to leave you at the end with a blessing, but I want to bless you now. I, um, I trust the Spirit of God working in you that you want to do whatever it is that He's put on your heart. I want to encourage and invite you to respond to whatever it is that He's saying to you. With this from Ephesians 3. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And all God's people said, amen.